Hallelujah. Thank you for that welcome. Acts chapter 10, if you have your Bibles with you. And if you don't, what the heck are you doing at a Bible conference? Acts chapter 10. Hallelujah. We all crave revival. We desperately want an outpouring of the Spirit of God. Charles Finney was of the mind that there is nothing supernatural about revival. He wrote in his book, Revival Lectures, a revival is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. What else would you expect from a lawyer? And so I think that that statement alone might qualify him as the great-grandfather of the megachurch movement that builds on demographics and mechanics and showmanship. But in my Bible, revival depends on a move of God. It is completely supernatural. It is a mighty rushing wind that blows through a generation. It is a fire that is poured out from heaven. It is God's outpouring. It is the former and the latter rain coming together. It is God giving the increase. It is a, a move of the Spirit. It is not just something we can engineer by certain procedures. We need God's involvement in that, and I think we've heard that all week long. However, having said that, I do believe that there are means, that there are things that we do that are conducive, uh, probably better said essential, to seeing this move of God, to seeing this outpouring. And what I am going to minister this morning is by no means the whole shooting match, but it clearly represents a major part of an outpouring of God and was in fact uh, the uh, triggering element in the greatest revival of all history, which is the uh, move of God amongst Gentiles. We're still in that revival. This is still the move of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles. Fast drawing to a conclusion, but still the move of God nonetheless. And so if we want to see God touch this generation, then there are a couple of factors involved that I want to address this morning that I hope will be of some help. Acts chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Do. Drop down to verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision 
who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I pray that you will meet with us way beyond anything I can say. Your spirit will implant uh, challenges and uh, dynamics into people's hearts. uh, And we will come away from this, God, changed in our perspective uh, in uh, how you move and what you're calling on us to do. I pray uh, that you'll have right of way, you'll anoint this word and every word this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. There's an amazing interaction here between the eternal and the earthly, the spiritual and the mundane. Cornelius is involved in two human activities, and these activities absolutely captivate God. I was talking with Mark Looney, uh, my associate pastor in Las Vegas, about this sermon, and he used the phrase divine fascination. I like that thought, that there is something that fascinates God when he finds a man who is involved in these actions in the way Cornelius was involved. We'll get to that in a moment. We'll drill down into these principles. But right now, I just want you to understand that there are things that you do that fascinate God. And when you do these things, God tunes in. He he is drawn to these activities. His gaze turns to the man and to the moment. And he is uh, uh, immediately involved in these activities. This is our greatest need. As a fellowship, as pastors, as churches, we need God's gaze on us right now. We need God uh, involved in what we're doing. Our text uses the imagery of the smoke of the offering, ascending before God. And this is the imagery of sacrifice. It's the imagery uh, of a a holy offering being uh, given to God. And it breaks through. It breaks into the throne room of heaven. It breaks in uh, to the very presence of God. Uh, And the word here that's used for memorial is a word that literally means reminder. But Lonida insists that we be careful not to uh, uh, imply that somehow God has forgotten anything. That this is not to remind God. God doesn't need reminding that we need revival. God doesn't need reminding. In fact, many, many times as pastors or as Christians, you may feel that God has forgotten you. He hasn't. He doesn't need reminding. He knows that you're there and he knows what your needs are. But there is something involved in Cornelius' actions that draw his attention. They fascinate him. They draw his attention to this man in this moment. God's plan was always an outpouring on the Gentiles. Going all the way back to Abraham. You will be a blessing to the nations. And God's plan always included far more than just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the actions of Cornelius were the catalyst. 
The actions of Cornelius lit the fuse of what God wanted to do. They were the final grain of sand on the scales that tipped them and created the great outpouring of God's Spirit on the Gentile nations. And if we're going to serve our generation's need of revival and need of salvation, then we're going to have to tip the scales. We're going to have to see God's outpouring in this generation. Just like Cornelius' day, God's plan is an outpouring. God didn't need reminding. This was his plan. His plan remains the same. God's plan is a visitation. Pastor Mitchell preached so powerfully on this on the last night of the winter conference that he knocked himself out. Now, maybe it wasn't that. It might have been chicken soup that he needed. We don't know. It knocked me out. It knocked us all out. And those words had such gravity. And as he spoke, as he declared the former and the latter reign, this is that. As he spoke those words, my heart was just stirred. Yes, God, that's coming. And we know it. We know revival is in the wings. We can feel the churning of the Holy Spirit. I was talking to Pastor Greg Mitchell uh, earlier this week, and he was telling me some of the things that are going on in Prescott. Folks, it's it's shaking. People getting healed at services that are so intense. And he, he made one comment. He said, you know, many, many times the problem with us is we're all jaundiced old warriors. And, you know, we've seen healings. And so somebody gets a supernatural healing, and we all go... Oh, yeah, okay, can we go home and get the roast now? And every pastor in his fellowship has experienced that a little bit. But he said what is so amazing, so remarkable about this stirring in the church in Prescott is that as he's praying for people and God is moving, he looks up and he sees the whole church is with him. They're in it. They're in the moment. They're caught up in what God is doing. They're sensing the presence of God. That's what we need. In every one of our churches, we need to shake off uh, the cobwebs and say, God, uh, a new move. A new supernatural move. That's what we want. That's what we crave. And I believe in my heart that that's exactly what's afoot right now. All the world is without form and void right now. It's chaotic. And the Holy Spirit is hovering. He's hovering over the face of the earth, uh, and he's about to birth new life. He's about to birth something supernatural, and we're all going to be blown away. We've seen supernatural revival. This fellowship was birthed in supernatural revival. But, beloved, put on your seatbelts because it's coming again. Amen. We are going to see it again. And I believe we're going to see it in greater proportions than we've ever seen it before. But I also believe that it will not be a unilateral act of God. God doesn't just wake up one morning and go, this feels like a good day for revival. God responds to human action. And I want to think about two human actions that are specified in our text. And I want to look at them carefully. I want to consider them. The first of these is prayer. I'm thinking about this. 
We are the prayingest fellowship on the planet. Perhaps next to Jim Simbla. I mean, the guy's definitely got prayer wired. But next, and even perhaps, I don't know, I've never been there. But I do know this. There is not another church in Prescott. There's not another church in Las Vegas. There's not another church in any of our cities where the whole congregation gathers together for an hour before service to get a hold of God. There is not a fellowship that I know of that has a biannual three-day fast and prayer. There's not a fellowship that I know of that opens their doors every morning for morning prayer and encourages people to be there. This does not happen in the church world. We're going to pray every day. We're going to make prayer an integral part of our lives. We challenge you. And granted, our morning prayer could probably use a little, a little, a few more people. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Hallelujah. Maybe some of you guys that you got to be at work at 7, you could come in and pray at 6 or 5 or 4. And now you're getting absurd. No, I'm not. You need to start your day with prayer. Amen. And some of you ladies, I know you're very busy getting Junior off to school and getting your husband fed and everything that's involved in that, but maybe you could come a little later, gather together and pray. I'm just throwing out some thoughts here. And this really isn't what my sermon is about. We are praying people. And so obviously that begs the question, all right, we're praying, where's revival? It's here. It's coming. We heard a tremendous sermon by Pastor Olson about that longevity, that waiting, because God is moving in his time, and, and that's true. I don't think the problem here is a lack of prayer. I don't believe that we aren't praying enough. You know, what are we supposed to do? Add another hour on every day? Jesus had a problem uh, with lengthy prayers and, and redundancy. He says in Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so I don't think it's a question of uh, we're not praying enough. But I want you to write this down somewhere. I want you to get this into your thinking. Effective prayer is conditional. Write that thought down. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, I hope you get this. Effective prayer. We can pray all day long like the priests of Baal. We can cut ourselves with knives. We can dance. We can sing. We can shout. But effective prayer is conditional. Prayer is part of our spiritual fabric. It's woven into the very life that we live. It's not a single event we don't go through the day and then we pray, Father, lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's not this separated discipline. It is very much a part of the warp and woof of our spirituality. Consider with me some scriptures. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wife with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together for the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now here, your marriage is directly tied to your prayers. And I wonder how many of us pray fervently for an outpouring of God's Spirit while we neglect 
our wives. While we, dare I say it, abuse our wives. Hopefully not physically, but we can do it emotionally. We can do it with our words. How many pastors are pleading on their knees for revival while they're treating their wife like a hired hand? Dismissive, uncaring, unloving. You didn't think that had anything to do with your ministry, did you? You were just going to go on and win the world. But you can't do it without your wife. Your wife is an integral part of your ministry. And if you leave her behind, you will find before long you don't have ministry. Paul's admonition to Timothy that a bishop must be the husband of one wife is more than just a prohibition on divorcees being involved in the pulpit. It is that. We certainly acknowledge that that is the primary uh, uh, cause of that statement. But to be a husband means to live out the obligations of a husband. And we know from Ephesians that our primary obligation is to love our wife as Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. <laughs> That's what I'm supposed to be doing. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You wives, you should be shouting right now. You should be elbowing your husband. You should be saying, Amen, Pastor Lamb. You got the mind of God. <laughs> wives always miss the best places to say amen. I wonder how many of our prayers are made futile because of our failure to love our wives, to love them the way they need to be loved, to touch them powerfully, to make them a major part of our life. Malachi said because the priests had been unfaithful to the covenants that they had with their wives, that God would no longer receive their offerings. Now, I understand that the context of that speaks to divorce. But we all know by experience that covering the altar with our wives' tears doesn't require something as radical as divorce. We can cover the altars with her tears by not noticing a new haircut. Most of us are mystified about our wives' tears. What are you crying about? What's the matter? Those are things that are worked out in the details of life, but I can say this for sure, that when we do not live the vows that we made before God, that we would love, honor, cherish, cleave to our wives, then that's going to have an impact on our praying. And that is going to hinder the very thing that we see in Cornelius triggered this outpouring of God's Spirit. Your marriage is absolutely essential to your prayer life. How about this scripture, James 4, 2 and 3? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures or on yourself. 
And again, obviously, I'm not talking about prayerlessness. We are a praying people. We've already settled that, and that's the assumption that we're operating in. But what about asking amiss? And you say, well, what could be amiss about asking for revival, about asking for souls saved? Well, the question is, is it really about souls, or is it about big churches and success? Are we crushed by a burden for the lost? Or are we worried that we won't be able to pay our bills if we don't get a few more people into church? Asking amiss is not just asking the wrong thing. It's equally asking for the wrong reasons. Jesus said the Pharisees were great at praying. They loved to pray to be seen of men. That their motives were all about uh, enlarging their own position uh, in, uh, in people's opinion. And he said, you know what? They're getting everything that they're going to get out of their prayer life. They want to be seen of men, they're seen of men. But they're not seen of God. And when we ask amiss, our prayers uh, are not seen of God. Are we intent on God being glorified in our generation, or do we just want to be the golden boy? And I admit that sorting out motives is always incredibly challenging. But I don't think this one is real hard to get to the bottom of. If you're praying for souls saved, but you yourself personally never witness, then chances are good you're asking amiss. It's not really a motive because you care about souls, because you never talk to souls. Pastor, you never go on outreach. You never talk to anybody. You're praying for revival, but you're not evangelizing. You're asking amiss. You're praying for revival, but it's not so that souls will be saved, because that clearly isn't your motive. I'll be done here pretty quick. <laughs> James 1, 6 to 8 says, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Are we praying in faith? A lack of faith. Our hearts filled with unbelief. Short circuit our prayers. Do we actually believe what we are praying for? Or are we like uh, the, the Christians that Pastor Elliot referred to that didn't believe in the power of prayer and the tavern keeper did believe in the power of prayer? Do we pray for rain and not carry umbrellas? Do we believe that God really wants revival in our church or have we settled into survival mode? Are we looking for the outpouring of God's Spirit? Do we ask for revival in the closet, and then when we come out of the closet, all we do is talk about why we can't have revival? Now, these kids, these people, they're just not, they're just not really spiritual. They're, everybody's carnal. There's, a, there's just a, too many problems in the church. Nobody witnesses. Nobody prays. Nobody goes on outreach. And basically, uh, we're contradicting with our mouth everything we just said to God. God, give me revival. Here's all the reasons we can't have it. 
Do we pray in faith? When Jesus told his disciples to pray for the Lord of the harvest, it's pretty clear that he intended uh, that they would be the workers sent into the harvest. He intended that they would live their prayers. Because faith isn't just what you believe. We've heard this again and again. Faith is what you believe, it's what you say, and it's what you do. And when we are praying in faith, uh, we are living that faith. Do you live as a pastor with a passion and with an expectancy and an enthusiasm? Because you're believing that God's going to do something. Or are you so beat down after years of ministry and so discouraged at not seeing God move uh, that you really aren't believing that God's ever going to move? You're praying out of rote. You're not praying out of faith. Maybe you should come home for some R&R. If the faith has been beat out of you, and believe me, I've been there. Faith can get beat out of you. God, I believed as hard as I can. I don't have much left. And I understand that. Well, maybe it's time just to, just to step out, go home, get some redirection, Get your faith balloon pumped back up. Listen to your pastors preaching for a while and then go take another crack in another city and give somebody your city. We heard that in the preaching this week. One man there, uh, he's uh, not seeing anything. Uh, a month later, the church is completely changed. Why? Because a new pastor stepped in and he's not carrying all the baggage the old pastor was carrying. His faith is still alive. And if your faith is done... Go home, get some rest, take a nap. <laughs> Labor with the, with the faithful. Get, get back in your mother church. Uh, get encouraged again. And then go out again full of faith and power. Prayers that have no faith have no effect. John 9, 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Now listen. I am the biggest fan of grace in this tent and probably the one most in need of it. Amen. And I am not speaking perfectionism here, but I wonder if sometimes we have a, a little bit of the greasy grace theology in our own thinking. And we live in ongoing and willful sin, perhaps hidden sin, and we think we're getting away with it, but what's, what it's killing is your prayers. See, nobody knows. God knows. Nobody sees. God sees. And without holiness, man will not see God. We will not enter into his presence without taking careful stock and inventory of our own holiness and spirituality. How many people in our churches, and perhaps even more scary, how many pastors... Do not take the pursuit of holiness seriously. It's very secondary. I understand we need new mercies every day. But how truly broken are we by our gossip, by our lovelessness, by our pride, by our covetousness, which we'll get to. And by all the respectable sins, you notice I wasn't talking about drug addiction and fornication. Hopefully, 
Nobody here is involved in that. If you are, go to your pastor immediately after this service. Repent. Draw a dotted line on your throat and just say, cut here. But I'm talking about the respectable sins. I'm talking about the things that we live with and we're comfortable with and we don't feel conviction anymore. We used to. But now we've silenced the still small voice. We're no longer subject to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible says God isn't listening to us. Essentially because we're not listening to him. Again, I understand that that was spoken in the context of a Jew who was defending the healing touch of Jesus. The Pharisees were saying, this man is a sinner. And, and the, 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 the man that was healed said, well, that's a, an amazing thing to me because God heard him and healed me. And we know God doesn't listen to sinners. So how could he be a sinner you can put it in that context and try to confine it to that, but ultimately we all know intuitively and scripturally that sin does a number on our relationship with God. We know that. We don't even have to be told that. We are like Adam and Eve. As soon as he shows up right after we sinned, we're all doing the great cover-up. We sense it. We know this has defiled my relationship with God. And so how is it that we can be so careless about our conduct and our lifestyle and our words and our thought life and still expect God to listen to our prayers. And yet, we understand from this text that it was the prayer life of Cornelius that moved the hand of God, that ascended before God, that got his attention, that triggered the plan of God, that brought revival to the Gentiles. We have to understand there are probably many other scriptures we could look at and other hindrances to prayer that are either stated or implied in the scriptures. But at the end of the day, I think you get my point. Your prayer life is connected to the rest of your life. It's all part of one fabric. And we cannot separate that and just play fast and loose with everything else in our life and expect our prayers to move the hand of God. Our prayers will make it into the throne room of God when they are unencumbered by our flesh. Amen. Prayer without surrender is religious hypocrisy. Cornelius, the Bible says, was devout and feared God. That's the Holy Spirit's take on Cornelius's life. Is that what God would say about you today? This guy's devout. He fears me. All right, let's move on. There's another stated reason why God poured out his spirit in revival. It's because Cornelius was a generous giver. Now this reaffirms what we've been taught our entire spiritual lives, and that is money is spiritual. And that it has a great impact in the spiritual realm. So much like prayer, it demands closer attention to the details in our lives. The way we handle our stewardship. The way we deal with money. We say we want revival. We pray for revival. We may even cry for revival. 
But are we willing to cut loose the materialism and the love of money, which is idolatry, that informs not just us, but our entire culture? I believe a case can be made that a vast majority of Christians do not know a thing about true liberality. The statistics come in again and again. I got so tired of reading George Barna, I've stopped. But as long as I can remember, in every publication I've ever read, the average Christian giving is somewhere in the neighborhood of 3%. That's a frightening thought. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 3% of their income. Now, as with prayer, I have to say that this fellowship is an incredibly giving fellowship. It is incredibly liberal. I remember uh, when I was my first church in in Cornelius, my first church in Cornelius, Colorado, (laughs) otherwise known as Cortez, Colorado. We were running about 30 people, and God, by his incredible grace and provision, enabled me to go full-time with 30 people. Amen. And I remember talking to my very wealthy uncle in New Jersey. And uh, he was encouraged to hear I was a pastor. He's a very religious man. Oh, that's very good. Good use of your life. Because I was, I was a stoner before that, and he knew that. And so he was, he was glad to see a bit of a change in my life. And he said, so uh, how big is your church? Uh, we're running about 30. I was excited. We're running about 30. Kind of silence on the other end. Oh. Oh, so what else are you doing to support yourself? Oh, nothing. I'm just preaching the gospel. Silence on the other end. Finally, he said, man, you must have a very generous congregation. Of course, he was thinking that I was living on his scale. I was living in a broken down house on tortillas and beans, but I was enjoying life. And so I understand that we are a liberal congregation, a liberal fellowship. We could not do what we're doing. We couldn't be running 2,000 churches without enormous liberality. We could not plant the churches that we plant overseas, conference after conference, not only in this conference, but in many other of our conferences. Overseas works being planted. That means there's a lot of liberal people in our fellowship. But I am a pastor, and I pastor people. And through the years, what I have found is that some people get it, and a lot of people don't. And the people that get it are incredibly liberal. And the people who don't get it aren't. But the people who don't get it often think they do get it. And they think because they are tithing, they are liberal. Tithing is not liberality. It's how we keep alive. It's how we stop God's hand from killing us. Repossessing our lives. Do you think you're liberal because you pay your mortgage bill every month? The Bank of America should very much appreciate My liberality, I paid my bill this week. 
Your car payments, you think this is liberality? Tithing is not liberality. May I disabuse you of that notion? I'm a giver. I tithe. You haven't begun to give. You have simply preserved your life and that of your children and your wife. And God said, okay, I won't kill you. Keep it coming. Maybe I'm overstating the thought, but I want to make the point that tithing is simply obeying God. It has nothing to do with a liberal heart. And your heart is not liberal if you tithe and tithe only. You are not liberal at all. You think you get it, but you don't. Amen. Cornelius gave alms. Now, we understand he was a Gentile. He was what's known as a God-fearer. That was many times a technical term applying to a Gentile who had joined themselves to the Jewish faith but had not gone as far, perhaps, as circumcision. Uh, They were still very much uh, uh, God-fearers. They believed that the principles and the laws of God were to be obeyed. So surely he knew about the tithe. And though he wasn't bound to the tithe as a Jew, and we all understand that the tithe has nothing to do with Mosaic law, it's way before that, but even as a, a man thinking from a Jewish mindset and embracing the Jewish law, he would have been a tither. But the Bible says nothing about his tithe because that is not a mark of generosity. It's his alms that are noted. It's his over and above tithe giving. It's his liberality with the needs of his generation. That God's spirit marks that ascends before God uh, as a a, a sweet-smelling aroma or a sacrifice. Liberality starts after the tithe. And it always is marked by sacrifice. Liberality is sacrifice. Jesus sat by the treasurer, treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Big givers. Verse 42, Mark 12, Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes it quadrants. That really helps us, doesn't it? So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given it to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now Jesus says that's liberality. It is marked by this quality of sacrifice. Paul uses the churches of Macedonia as an example. And he says that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. It wasn't just a question of the fact that they gave a lot, but that they gave a huge portion, and it was sacrificial. It came out of poverty. It came out of their own want. They could feel their giving. That's when you're venturing into liberality. It's when you can feel your giving. See, sacrifice has always been at the center of man's relationship with God. It starts with the constant flow of the blood of bulls 
And it ends with the unflinching sacrifice of God's only son, which is a sacrifice beyond anything we can comprehend. But we see it throughout the scriptures. Sacrifice, getting God's attention. Sacrifice, central to a man's relationship with God. We see it in Abraham and Isaac and Mount Moriah. We see it in Joseph's consecration at Bethel. We see it in the willing offerings made by Israel for the tabernacle and for David's enormous collections from Israel for the temple. And it inspired him to praise God and say, who are we to be able to give so much? We see it in the ongoing sacrifices of David on the threshing floor of Ornan. Pastor Campbell Monday night talked about the thousand bulls uh, offered by Solomon. We see it in the Levitical sin offerings, uh, the peace offerings, the free will offerings, the thank offerings, uh, the grain offerings, the heave offerings, the burnt offerings, the vowed offerings. Uh, You get it? You get it? It's always been central. To God's relationship with his people. Bring your sacrifices. Don't come empty-handed. We see it in Christ's constant teaching uh, on liberality. The rich man and Lazarus. The unjust steward. uh, The rich fool with bigger barns. uh, The challenge uh, to the rich young ruler to give all that he had. uh, The laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven. The impossibility of serving God and mammon. uh, We see it uh, in uh, the uh, camel and the eye of the needle. uh, The danger of measuring life by the things we possess, this observation of the widow's might, the statement to Zacchaeus that today salvation has come to your house because of the way it affected your take on money. Again and again and again, your relationship with God has to be absolutely laced with an enormous heart of giving. Your Christianity has to be lived in this constant awareness of God. What can I give to you? What can I give for your purposes? What can I give to you that will be a sweet-smelling savor, an aroma acceptable to God? It is a symptom of our Western materialism that we think we can expect the outpouring of the Spirit of God without sacrifice personal, felt sacrifice. I've got to admit, I am somewhat baffled by men who go to a city to build a church and then they spend the rest of their life building a career. And all of their time is given to making money. How can you expect revival if revival is not the focus of your life? Joe Canto is having incredible revival back in Rhode Island. There is hope for the East Coast. My pa- uh, associate pastor, Mark Looney, went back there a-, a number of years ago as an evangelist before he came on staff, preached a couple revivals for him. He said they were good. People got saved. The church grew. It was running about 40. The next time he went, it was running about 50. You know, it was kind of, kind of you know, the way we see things happening. But he just went back this, le- this year, just a-, a couple of months ago, I think, And uh, the first time Mark went back to see Joe and preach for Joe, Joe picked him up at the airport in this beautiful new truck. I mean, this was a flash truck. It it had all the trimmings. It was a beauty. 
And so they drove off happily to their church and had their typical revival. So this last time he went, Joe picks up his luggage and throws it into an absolute clunker. And Mark looks at it and goes, man, what happened? And Joe said, oh, this is my full-time truck. What he had done is sold all his vehicles, gotten rid of all his debt so that he could spend his life preaching the gospel. Amen? And the consequence is they were running about 140 in their services. That's pretty good. Some of you are thinking, I'm going to go sell my truck. <laughs> well, think about the bigger picture. What kind of sacrifice are you making to be in ministry, to be a pastor, to see revival in your church? See, a lot of our people, they go out, but they don't want to sacrifice. Want to live in the same kind of house they were living in when they had a nice income. You might have to live in a cockroach palace. I, I remember the Heimbergs coming to Las Vegas with all of their ch children, uh, squeezing into a, an apartment the size of a closet. I am baffled by pastors who make no sacrifice for their ministry. Pastors who make no sacrifice to get off the support of the mother church. You know what? Your mother church can't plant any more churches because they're too busy feeding you. Do you care about revival? Do you want your generation touched? Then scale back your lifestyle so they don't have to keep sending you money. I am baffled by pastors who are not liberal themselves but expect their congregations to be liberal. Sacrificial giving has to be part of the life of your congregation, which means, pastor, it starts with you. It's all right to write church checks, but you're going to need to write some of your own. Just chucking in 20 bucks on top of your tithe is not liberality. I am baffled by men who can come to this conference and let the Colonel Sanders bucket go by without putting anything in night after night. It's baffling. Why are we here? Oh, I'm here to get. No, you're here to give. You're here to make everything that we do happen. And that includes me, and that includes every man in this tent. I don't know. Maybe I'm just simple. But it seems to me that if the opening of the doors to the Gentiles was triggered by Cornelius' praying and his giving, then maybe the end times revival that we know is at hand, that we know is the plan of God, that we say, God, where is it? Maybe, just maybe. It has to do with our praying and our giving. Maybe prayers can only ascend to God when they're not freighted with self-love and self-interest. And maybe our giving can only ascend to God as a sacrifice when we're giving more than we can afford. When we're giving what we feel. Everything we put in the plate, we feel it. That's sacrifice. That's what gets the nose of God. I'm through.